Hello and welcome to Springboard, your virtual university. My name is Albert Okran, welcoming you on behalf of the Virtual Academic Board chaired by Comfort. Springboard is your most inspirational show and a point of convergence for the greatest minds. Springboard is brought to you by the Springboard Racial Foundation in partnership with the Multimedia Group and proudly sponsored by MTN, MTN, Pulse, Just B, UMB Bank, UMB Speed Up, DigiBank, Let's Go, the Enterprise Group, Enterprise Your Advantage, and the Graphic Business with support from MyJoy Online. For the past weeks, we've been looking at the changing world of work, trying to understand how a conspiracy or a combination of innovation and technology, customer preferences, and COVID-19 have totally changed the way we work. Today, we settle on what I believe is probably the most exciting and in some parts, a bit scary part of the changing world of work. We look today at the future of work. Helping me understand the themes and the underlying issues are two tech principalities. Let me first introduce the engineer turned tech guru, my brother Kofi Daze, co-founder of Rankard. Kofi, good to see you. Good to see you too, Robert. Thank you for having me. It's always a blessing. And then bring on board my other brother, the tech guru turned lawyer, Kofi Ousinshira, the director at Insano. Kofi, good to see you. Good to see you too, Albert. Interesting how Kofi and Kofi are regular faculty here at Springboard, and yes, I find yes, a way to yes. bring you two together <laughs> every time on the platform. Yes, yes, yes. But it's a blessing. Good to be here. So we've been traveling this journey trying to explore the changing world of work, and it's been quite exciting looking at various angles of it. We are settling now into what the future would look like. It's a bit interesting when you see the future, because sometimes you see this, this will happen in two years, and it happens in two months. But let's model for discussion purposes five years from now. And just to help our listeners appreciate, select any industry, activity that is familiar, and give us an idea about how the future is likely to look like from where we sit. Just for perspective, Kofi, that's, you can start. Sure. Thank you, Albert. And... Um... Forgive me because before we look at a specific use case, the model for projecting what happens over time must be understood. So if we go one, two, five thousand years ago in history, um, the experiences of your great grandfather and the experiences in livelihood and in work of their great grandchildren would be largely the same. Not a lot would change or evolve. So if the great-grandfather then used a stone-based implement to turn the soil to sow a seed, the likelihood is that their great-grandson would be using a very similar, barely modified, barely evolved implement to do the same. Now, in the 21st century, some of the studied estimates are that if we use today's rate of progress, or say the rate of progress that we've seen technology evolve in, say, the last 10 years, 2010 to about 2020, if we use that rate to measure for the 21st century, we're likely to see a thousand years equivalent of progress compared to the 20th century. That is to say that we're going to experience the equivalent of time acceleration because the rate of change in our lives due to the introduction, the rate of introduction and evolution of certain new technologies combined are going to have an effect as though we have transitioned a thousand years just to over the next 80 years of our lives. That is most likely to happen because we have introduced an age where there is the evolution of a machine model that is coming closer and closer 
to cognition on parallel with human models and ultimately to exceed what humans are typically able to do. We are used to machines that are very good at doing only what they have been programmed or configured to do. And we all have machines like that. We press an A key, it produces an A key. But now, we're all experiencing machines where when you press an A key, it doesn't produce only an A key or, or an A character. It produces half of a sentence of what you might want to write out beyond the A character you started with. And that has come in very subliminally into our lives. We've mostly seen that kind of feature enhancement as yet another nice, nice to have capability. And many of us haven't spent as much time thinking, wait a second, even my secretary or co-worker I've collaborated with for 10 years couldn't complete my sentences like this. Hold it a second. If I understand the introductory Kofi Dazi, what you're saying is that the new technologies that are coming out are far more intelligent, far more flexible, and are able to predict and therefore do much more than what you have been used to over the past. Not really. What I am saying is that the advancement of these new intelligent machines yes. are coming to a point where they will exceed human intelligence in ways in which we're not prepared for, we don't appreciate, and many of us don't even accept can happen. Many of us are projecting the future, whether we are looking at one year, five years, or longer, as though the limitations we perceive of machines today will be the basis on which our lives, the way we interact with each other, and the way we interact with machines will continue to persist. We only expect small stage-based evolutions. We're not really prepared for post the knee of the exponential curve. There's a stage at which the rate of growth becomes vertical. Prior to now, we see small changes occurring. Every few years, you see the next release of your Mercedes C-Class coming oh, out. Every few years or a year, you see the next version, mobile phone or Microsoft operating system or something come out. So we are used to incremental changes where things are introduced, where it's relatively comfortable to come along. What I'm trying to say is that that pace of change is about to shift to what is almost vertical on an exponential curve where we won't even be able to keep up anymore because the evolution in machine intelligence is getting to the point where it exceeds what human intelligence is able to compute. And at that stage, what you are essentially looking at is we're not necessarily creating the machines anymore at our pace, but the machines beyond our pace are continuing to create and disrupt what our everyday expectations of what that future will be. So the challenge really is that we need to start thinking about future change very differently from the way we've experienced it and the way we've recorded it historically also in the past. Interesting start. I'll come back to you for that selection of your preferred area so you break it down. But let me get Kofi interest. Preliminary thoughts about incremental versus exponential, or if I may add, vertical change. Yeah, um, Albert. So I think what is, what is happening here, and I'm happy um, Kofi Daze talks about the evolution of technology you know, in a certain context. Now, the reason why that's exciting is because what forces change in society, two things. One is usage. Every time we use a thing, we get to understand li the limitations of the thing. And so you end up pushing it beyond boundaries. The second thing that is slightly dependent on usage is, is cost. The more we use, the cheaper it becomes. So if you like, economics uh, students will call it economies of scale. Right. Now, what is happening here really is that when we push 
technology into various facets of society, or we use technology more in various fields, what essentially happens is that we get to understand the limitations of the present technology as we know it, and we are able to push the boundaries of it. And so you can imagine that um, during the Apollo um, trip to the moon, um, man sort of got to understand that it's possible to beat the force of gravity and to fly into space. But subsequent to that, we are not just flying to, to space to see the moon, but now we are sort of getting familiar with other planetary substances and objects and so on and so forth. So really, I think two things that underline this conversation for me is usage and the cost effectiveness that is as a result of the usage. So in whichever field we see it, once people in that field, whether it's medicine, whether it's law, whether it's in finance, once we start using technology in those fields, technology itself will be forced to the limit where innovation must kick in for technology to grow and it will become affordable. Quite apart from this premise that I'm trying to set, I also think that what is going on right now is a certain intersection between technology and any other field. So there is technology and fashion. There's technology and grooming. There's technology and finance. There's technology and insurance. Now, these intersections will force those fields that are meeting up with technology to grow beyond the limitations as we know them, make things very possible, make things very effective, bring costs low, and then we'll really start getting the benefits of technology as we know it. You described two things as your lead points, usage and cost effectiveness. Should I add appetite and curiosity? Well, yeah, I mean... Are they implied? Uh, yeah, those things, those, I mean, appetite, curiosity, etc., will force usage to grow um, if they are, you know, they are situated within the right environment. I mean, across Africa, and as I travel across Africa, what I see is that the ecosystems that are required for there to be the appetite and for there to be, if like invariably, that usage is growing. So whereas in 2007, um, people could have used Netflix if there was the ecosystem, now that ecosystem has been created. There is a 4G internet in a lot of countries. And so you are able to stream videos online, and so cinema is in your bedroom, technically speaking. So that usage comes in. More people get into that area. It brings costs low. A lot more people can have access to that technology. And so it becomes ubiquitous. Every home, there is one form of technology. I'm able to turn off lights with my cell phone while I'm sitting here in the studio. So really, that is the power of technology. And you don't need a lot of money to be able to afford because there is usage and there is economies of scale, and so it brings the, the cost low. Then another word comes in, access. Let's continue this discussion. Let me come back <laughs> to you, Kofidazi. Just for the benefit of somebody listening out there, hearing all these nice words about, about incremental, vertical, or exponential, hearing about usage and then cost, and then hearing intersection, and then also hearing about access due to economies of skill, Let's wrap all this in one parcel and take anything, whether it is watching of films as in Netflix, whether it is church, whether it is transport, any human activity or industry, and model how these forces that you mentioned are playing out, and then we'll come back to see how they affect work going forward. Could you take that, that first bite? It's connecting from what he said to some experiences in our lives. Let me start by suggesting that as of now, the two parameters of usage, the linkage with economies of scale, and so the economic factors have indeed determined not so much the pace of technological discovery, but the pace of dissemination and distribution. Access, That's right. access. So to come to your point on access, access has been when it's cheap enough to produce this at scale and have the distribution channels available so that it's out there and then competition kicks in and then 
there are some evolutions in how the technology is manufactured and so the prices keep coming down. And I think one of the best examples of that recently will even be with solar panels used in uh, household right. electric generation where many of us will remember what it cost to have a deployment say five, 10 years ago versus now. And we've seen that happen. You can pick almost any um, technology. Today, a basic smartphone can be had for a pretty affordable price, even though there'll be extremely high-end ones. But in the past, that would not have been available. So I think for access, economies of scale, and if you are able to dig into the supply chains, the global supply chains, mm -hmm then you actually see all the other factors that make a flat screen 25-inch um, monitor $120 or $150 today. Whereas when I came out of engineering school and joined Dell initially, that cost 5,000 USD. 5,000 USD, 150 USD. That's mm. monumental shift. Yeah. But what I learned was happening was that at the time, manufacturing capacity was limited. Mm. And so as the laptop generation was emerging, those same flat screens mm. were being used in laptops. And so to make them available as monitors mm. for people to use as a, stand, a standalone desktop monitor, mm -hmm. there was basically um, a gap in production capacity, right. which influenced what the right. cost of that would be. Right. As capacity expanded, now to Kofi Osun Shiraz's point, based on usage, that's the appetite mm -hmm. for people having a nice flat screen occupying less desk real estate. Mm -hmm. And also, it meant it was not your cathode ray tube technology, which was beaming light into your eyes, but it was LCD, eventually LED, which is less harmful to the eye. People desire to have that more. So the style or fashion aspect of it, the real estate, the health aspect, all those benefits meant demand would shift there. And so once that happens, then in the economics, capacity production begins to chase after that. But one thing I think we should recognize that's going to become an added critical variable is the process from thought to concept to discovery to R&D prototyping to production to even building a market is also going to be increasingly highly compressed. Mm. And it's interesting that we've just seen that happen in the time it takes to bring a vaccine to market. So we're beginning to see more the evidence of that compression in technological evolution, progress to production, right? Um, by June of last year, Oxford vaccine trials had begun. Tells you in April, May, the vaccine had already been developed. For most of us, we first heard of this virus outbreak seriously between February and March. So we could theoretically say that it took barely two months. And by the way, that's what we hear in the news. In the lab, I bet you it was probably even much faster. So even the ability for factories to retool so that they are able to produce some variation or some other model of what they were doing the previous day has improved because of machine automation, because of technologies like 3D printing, which shift a lot of the retooling from changing components, physical components of robotic arms or screw parts and components that would be in a typical manufacturing assembly, to it simply being a high precision software prototype to a printing machine that is able to render with whatever material it has been fed with, and there's the material science component of that, to produce high precision implements, including and eventually at nanoscale, which increases the variety and the variation with which you can take a design response and bring to market. So that brings the cost. Here is where the economies are down significantly. So the compression of time in the terms of experience of, the, of what technology will bring to us, what access will become, the time it will take, for somebody in a rural environment to experience in their hands or in whatever aspect of their lives a new technology. In some cases, it's as simple as a 3D printer and various evolutions of 3D printing 
that are coming about, which bring the components of change, particularly the physical components of change, much closer to users. So, Kufidazi, what you say is probably very exciting for a listener listening intently and saying, okay, so in reality, in my life, solar technologies are cheaper now. Cell phones are cheaper than when they came out at first. Flat screens are cheaper. In fact, machine automation has been accelerated. Then you say the drivers of these are usage, improvement in technologies, safer and healthier ways to do things. It's more fashionable and capacity has grown. And then you model the fact that from thought to concept to discovery to R&D to prototyping and to market has been compressed and is happening faster than it used to happen. And you use the vaccine as an example, something that people can relate to in a big way in this COVID pandemic. And you're saying that previously it would take years to come out with a vaccine. And now within a year and far less, if you look at what you are describing, a solution has been found, deployed, and is really changing the landscape as far as the pandemic is concerned. So to you, this is an improvement in the quality of life. Would that be a summary? It can translate to an improvement in the quality of lives if policymakers especially come to a better grasp of what the changes that uh, we are about to meet look like and harness them rather than allow them to create unwanted dislocation. So there's a risk and there's a potential benefit. I'm going to come to the risk and the benefits for individuals, for companies, for policymakers, for the world at large. And situated in the context of the world of work, what that would imply for employers and employees. Let me give you a chance, Kofi, also in Shira, to walk us the same journey with anything of your choice. How have technologies changed our way of life and they will bring it into the world of work? So I'll build my answer on three foundations. The first pillar will be that any kind of work that is labor-intensive will be replaced by more efficient technology that is able to handle such labor-intensive tasks. Number two, if it's routine and something that must be done over a period of time the same way consistently, that can heavily be disrupted by technology. And the third premise will be that if we want to attain precision, a certain high level of excellence, as far as a particular work is concerned, then that work or that task will be performed by technology. Now, we need to also appreciate the fact that new technology doesn't really come in every day and every week and so on and so forth. But the growth of technology happens daily, on a day-to-day basis. So, for example, the mobile phone technology itself might not go away for a while. But the usage of mobile phone will replace a lot of things based on these three pillars that I've sought to build. On the back of that, stuff like law, and maybe because I'm familiar with law, uh, let me use that field to explain the point I am making. One of the tasks that lawyers have to perform every day is to make arguments before courts and um, think along the lines of what the judge or what the law is supposed to mean. And if you're going before a particular judge, you'd like to make your arguments in a certain way, taking into consideration the philosophical leanings of the judge. You take into consideration precedence. Precedence in law will be cases that have been determined with identical or similar facts to the present case that you are dealing with. Now, I think that this technology, this artificial intelligence, this big data technology that we talk about day to day is gradually seeping into the the law field, for example. And so we are going to have big data allow us to predict how a particular case will go before the judge, how the judge will determine the matter. Because as a matter of fact, all I need 
is to know what the judge has said in all his previous rulings. Well, yeah, of course, or her. Um, what other cases have been determined by the court along those lines? Um, what the present facts of the matter I'm dealing with presently imply? And what the law says? And I can determine what the judge will rule. And what is exciting for me is that we're going to see this at scale. And it's going to be so affordable that before a prospective client walks to a law firm, the client is able to weigh on his mobile phone how the case is going to go if he went to court. And the client essentially is going to be as effective as a lawyer, only that now perhaps as a barrier to entry, you need to have gone to a certain school and done a number of things before you could stand before a judge as a lawyer. But the cracks of what a lawyer does, the substance of what a lawyer does, is changing gradually. And that will be replaced by technology. At this point, I'm allowed to laugh. And <laughs> laugh because what you're saying is skill, affordability, accuracy, and access. I'm going to multiply it because whatever, you mentioned mobile telephony, but the law is obviously the one that has caught my attention. You're saying that by the use of technology and artificial intelligence and big data, one would be able to look at previous arguments, the leanings of a particular judge, precedents from court, and accurately, all things being equal, be able to determine outcomes ahead of time. And this but the happened. last question that you say is happening. It's happening. But yeah. the last point that caught my attention is that what then happens to the lawyer? When I come back from this break, we'll be finding out <laughs> what this means for the so-called professionals, including mm -hmm. my friend, the doctor, who said, a patient challenged his reading and said, my app has given me different results before I entered your consulting room. And he mm -hmm. says, it was most humiliating to concede after measuring the second time that the client or the, the <laughs> patient was right and he, the doctor, right. was wrong. Right. Don't go away. Hi, this is Albert and I have some great news for you. Here's one more way to matriculate and graduate every single week. Your favorite inspirational program, Springboard Your Virtual University, now airs on Joy Prime on your multi-TV and DSTV channel 281 every single week. Join us this and every Friday from 5 p.m. till 6 p.m. as we explore different subjects and our theme for the year, repositioning. Springboard Virtual University will therefore now be on Joy FM, Facebook, and YouTube every Sunday at 7 p.m. and on Joy Prime from 5 p.m. till 6 p.m. every Friday. Springboard is brought to you by the Springboard Ratio Foundation in partnership with the Multimedia Group and proudly sponsored by MTN, UMB Bank, the Enterprise Group with support from the graphic business. Springboard, your personal value will shoot up. left out. Download the MTN Pulse app from the App Store or Play Store to mash up all day, every day. You can also enjoy more mashup. Just buy the new Mega Bundle and get 3 gigabytes data, extra 400 megabytes for your social apps and free MTN to MTN calls every Monday. So just go ahead, feel the pulse on MTN Pulse. Just be. We're good together everywhere you go. From Chotro passenger to tier robot car owner. At Enterprise, we take care of life's uncertainties so you are free to make your dreams a reality. Dream big with us. Enterprise, your advantage. UMB was established in 1972 as the premier bank for the corporate and private sector in Ghana. From our very beginning, as the only Ghanaian bank serving all categories of businesses, we set a standard for excellence and innovation over the past 45 years. We've built a financially healthy and strong bank, demonstrated our commitment to our customers and to growing businesses, and exhibited originality and innovation at every turn. At UMB, our focus is built around people, service, products, and technology, these are the key to our present success and our future triumphs. At UMB, we are poised to make a difference not only with our customers, but also in the banking industry. We invite you to share in our future. 
Our future starts now with you. This is Springboard of Virtual University discussing today the future of work. And that future actually is already here with us. And Kofi Dazi, co-founder of Rankard, and Kofi Osu Ishira, the director at Insano, are helping me to understand the drivers of technological advancement and what it means for various facets of our life. Talking about technology, let me swing over to Jojo with the Data is King segment as he brings us some information about technology disruption. And when we come back, I'll find out from my guests how this situates or how this can be situated within the conversation we are having. Jojo, what do you have for us today? A report by the International Telecommunication Union showed that by July 2020, internet traffic, a proxy for technology adoption, had increased by 30%. The World Economic Forum also shows that COVID has accelerated technology trends and disrupted various sectors, including education, commerce, health, and entertainment. These trends are here to stay. But here are five things you can do to stay in the game. One, listen to and learn from the market. Two, benchmark inside and outside your industry. Three, identify potential disruptors that could actually be a source of opportunity. Four, turn promising ideas into opportunities. And five, collaborate. And I'll leave you with a question. How are you adapting to the changing trends to ensure you're not disrupted? Welcome back from the break. This is Springboard, your virtual university, brought to you by the Springboard Racial Foundation in partnership with the Multimedia Group and proudly sponsored by MTN UMB Bank, the enterprise group with support from the graphic business and my joy online. Before we went to the break, Jojo came in with some thoughts about technology disruption. Let me find out from Kofi and Kofi how these thoughts fit into the conversation that we are having. Kofi Osinshira, what would you say? Yeah, so Jojo's point, um, his last point on collaboration, I think it's crucial, it's critical. Um, as a matter of fact, with the pace of growth of technology usage in this part of the world, um, your best bet to secure your job is to collaborate with technology or to collaborate with persons who are deploying technology in any shape or form. Um, to be able to secure your job. So really, collaboration is critical, is crucial for the, the, the next segment of the, you know, before, you, before the break, you mentioned we'll, we'll be talking about whose job will be safe and so on. I think collaboration is critical. Let me come to Kofi Dazi and your thoughts on the presentation, and then I'll, I'll come to the implications for what we are discussing today. Yeah, thanks, Rev. I like the point on... Um, sensing the market, listening, understanding what's happening elsewhere, what's changing. And um, I think um, the greatest challenge any professional has is understanding what change there is, what change may come, and bringing yourself up to speed with it, learning, continuous learning, so that you're able to stay relevant. Let me ask you for help with two things that Kofi Owusu Ishram mentioned earlier as he described the law. One was artificial intelligence, that one was big data. These two are being thrown about all over the place, but the average listener probably doesn't even know what they mean or what they are. Help us to understand, what is artificial intelligence? Right. So, simply put, it is intelligence that is not natural, that is not coming in the bearing of human reasoning but is artificial in that it's being processed and computed in the bearing of a machine that has been designed to achieve that. Um, in primary school, mm -hmm. if a, a teacher said this kid is intelligent, often they meant that this kid is able to derive and perceive the meaning correctly of something new based on previous related, unrelated, knowledge they have, and that they are able to do it quickly. There's a, there's a speed factor there. So artificial intelligence for many of us is when a machine is able to, <laughs> I'd like to use an expression I learned from Dr. Otabo, rightly divine, <laughs> or accurately determine 
predict, correctly resolve something which it has not been previously programmed or configured to do. So we say it's acting intelligently. That's um, now big data is is basically looking at it's an interesting expression data that has become really big well, one of the best ways to explain it is the comment uh, google's former chairman eric schmidt made in somewhere in 2010 i think every two days we're generating about as much data as was generated from the dawn of mankind to 2003 every two days. every two days and he made this statement, or this statement is recorded way back in about 2010, and that has multiplied and accelerated since. And some of the best examples of recognizing that is how many selfies, pictures, messages, videos, that on average we tend to exchange every day on our mobile devices without thinking about it. These are all contributing to the big data revolution. The link to AI is that the fuel of artificial intelligence is data. So the way Kaifuli put it is that if AI is the new electricity, then data is the fuel. So the reason AI is developing, evolving, advancing, the reason machine intelligence is advancing so much faster is actually also that we are generating so much more data to feed it. Now the key here is machine intelligence and the algorithms bearing it are designed to uh, develop an understanding of the features of what they look at. Be it text or a human face, the features are what is this curvaceous, textured, multiple thing sticking out of this part, which is the eyebrow. Oh, it's an eyebrow. When I see something else like it, can I determine whether this is hair on the head versus an eyebrow or so versus a, let me, a let mustache? Let me ask you a similar question. So um, there's a, a software apparently on Earth that if you took a picture of a plant mm -hmm. and showed the plant to a device or a camera or whatever, it would just tell you the name of the plant, the botanical name, the history of it, all the information that you require. Are you saying that is what is at work in the description that you are giving me? So image recognition is actually very old now, Albert. Okay. Think about the software that takes your picture and shows you what you will look like 20 years from now. It's very, so, it's very popular on, on, on social media. Exactly. So these things are pretty advanced already. And what's happening is the new algorithms that are constantly emerging, like generative adversarial networks, which will take a bunch of us in this room. We are each different, different looking. Study our features and produce another four or five people who are not us, who don't exist, but have similar features. They could be our relatives. By using a model in which it's scoring how much the newly generated image is alike to the previous ones it has studied. So the development and understanding of features and image recognition and textual recognition, if we go back to what Kofiwo Sushira was talking us through, in the past, if we asked an AI agent to read through a document, not only would it make a lot of errors, it may even struggle in the past with if a human was speaking, the difference between right and right, right being left, right versus right being right, wrote, written, right? Today, with more cognition and context, looking at the entire sentence, it's not only being able to make those determinations, but determine what may come next. The truth is, right after this show, we just feed the voice into a software, mm -hmm. and in a minute or in, in a few seconds, it will just tell us what everyone said. Mm -hmm. Whereas previously, it would have been somebody's job to, to transcribe, transcribe yeah, exactly. what was said. Absolutely. And they would say it with your name, you said this, you said right. this, and it's all How available. How about you go the next step and ask the software to translate it in real time into multiple languages so that people who Absolutely. are Arabic speakers, Japanese speakers, French speakers, German speakers, can also appreciate and enjoy it. That too is available. Which brings me to, and, and I, I wish you had more time to break this down because here we are. We've laid enough of the theoretical foundation and I like the note of which we, or, or where we are now. You're saying just by feeding the audio of a one-hour interaction into a machine, it can generate 
a transcription of what was said in English, who said what. It can generate various languages of it. It can probably predict where this would have headed if we had continued the discussion based on certain algorithms or knowledge or Determine who to market it to. Right. Probably even make a determination on where it should be sold at what price point. Or who would listen if you put it on the, on the social media. Precisely. What does this mean for people's jobs? Who are the big winners? Who are the losers? So starting right from learning to jobs, because that's where the problem exists. We anticipate that I'll grow up and I'll be a lawyer or an international language translator or a, an engineer. And we have a certain perception of what a doctor, a, a surgeon does in a theater. Kopio Sinshira talked us through how a lawyer prepares a case to go before a judge. So this is our understanding. And that influences curriculum and how we learn. However, if the market woman who wants to trade with Chinese or Arabs in Dubai can stick a wearable in her ear, speak Ga Ever Chi or Fanti, and in real time, her counterpart hears it in their language accurately, including translation of numbers, concepts, descriptions, colors, and everything, then lots of things become very different. Lots of what we might call middlemen's jobs in between there may become lost. Now, those capabilities exist today. They are access and dissemination subjects to some of the economies of skill Kopio Usun Shishura described. Please say what you just said again. I heard it, but I want to hear it again. You're talking about a marketing woman speaking, let's say, a traditional language like Ga. Yes. Without on a phone call, bothering in real, in time, real time, talking to a Chinese in one of the cities where we'd otherwise usually go to to go and place these orders, describing what she's looking for, amounts, value, color shades, textures, all in her own language, in her own way of expressing herself. In real time, the counterpart in the other country in a different language is hearing, it's hearing, understanding, and proceeding to do business. In Chinese? In Chinese, or in whatever other language. Would you call these miracles? Or <laughs> Back to the, the, the Tower I'm of Babel. <laughs> that, that, that is brilliant, because you're perfectly right. They are miracles, in that there is a fine line between science and spirituality. Let's deal with what this means going forward for working hours, for employment contracts, for the need for middlemen or middle women, if I may say so. What does this bode for the way we work? Ahmed, I, I hold a slightly contrarian view to the popular view out there on how technology and these trends will affect work and the labor force and the number of hours we work and so on. I think that technology, as we've seen over the years, carves its own path. Every time, you know, it's used heavily and it pushes the limitations of, of life and so on and so forth. I think that with the example that I sought to draw with, in, you know, in, the tech, in the law field or the fact that now with a single what Elizabeth Holmes sought to do, it's been done in, in, in certain quarters where with a single pint of blood, we're able to determine what sort of ailment you might, you might have and so on and so forth. I think that new jobs that we have never anticipated are going to come to the table. Correct. Which is why I said uh, in Jojo's intervention, collaboration is crucial and is critical. And ability to learn and ride on a horse that is already moving is a crucial skill that we need to learn. So um, when um, Isiansa came on the show a couple of weeks ago, um, she talked about some of the soft skills and then your ability to handle a very complex, um, co you know, complexity in, in life and so on. And I think that is cr is a, is a crucial skill that we should be teaching our kids and we all should be learning because we might have to reposition very quickly and use technology to work very effectively um, because of the nature of technology. As a matter of fact, I think that very few jobs will be lost, really. Um, only that the level of precision that will be expected now will increase because now, for, imagine if you had a photographer who would typically go around the event and be taking pictures and so on, now you want a certain quality with it. Now you probably don't want him to go wash so to speak, and bring you, you know, hard copy pictures. But 
what is going on right now has introduced a certain new market of digital pictures and digital photography and so on and so forth. So I think that very few jobs will be lost, really. So and a lot of let, me interrogate, let me interrogate mm. your thoughts because at right. a point I was agreeing with you and saying your thoughts are no longer not as contrarian as you thought. Mm. But mentioning digital cameras, I couldn't help but imagine that in some kinds of fields you would find that uh, previously you probably would need about seven different photographers at different locations capturing different angles. Today the hall is fitted with robotic cameras already and there's uh, one, one unit that programs all of them and one person sitting behind it. The first time I walked into a print finishing shop in Amsterdam, there was this guy with an overall with one arm hanging over controlling a two million euro machine that was doing everything from beginning, collating, stitching, trimming, packaging, and the machine was even taking the box. We just shipped the box off and the next one off and he was even smoking while it was working. It was just one person. But imagine what sort of demand now people have of such technology. So the, the demand for that sort of field multiplies to the power 10 or to the power 100. But it shifts, it shifts people, the power centers. No, so that, the that are not needed. The stitches are not needed. The binders are not needed. One machine is doing that. No. And rather, those creating the machines are those who are needed. So no. So what's going on right now? And I'm happy you make this example. What is happening right now? One person is seized with multiple um, capabilities. And the guy was smoking. He wasn't even... He was just working. <laughs> just cool. But, but, but most of these things are manned. So I guess what is, what is really happening, and to, for us to be very no, realistic... No longer manned. Well, but that's another whole conversation. I mean, in today's drone delivery market and so on, Either you are at the point of assembling the drones, or you are at the point of manning the drones, or working with the drones to make what the drone is giving us more user-friendly, etc., etc. See, what I'm saying is that usually we exaggerate the impact of technology, um, and it's happened over the years, and I'm a student of history, so I like to go back into history. And from the Industrial Revolution, and we usually exaggerate the impact of technology but what, I want, what I'm actually advocating for in this dispensation is that people learn how to tech, collaborate with technology more right. than to assume that technology is going to do away with their jobs. Of course. Now, I probably don't need uh, uh, too many people to do reconciliation for finance transactions because we've automated the process. But the process that is involved, you know, the process that we need to go through in building that technology, we need a lot of human intelligence to teach systems to perfect the process to be able to perform those tasks. So if jobs will be created, but it will be different from the jobs that Absolutely, exist. that's the point I'm making. And secondly, it's and also the plethora of jobs will be created. People who don't adapt will find themselves on the fringes change of a rapidly changing world if you don't change, that you is are now out. vertical and not incremental. Absolutely. This is I, I, beautiful, I, I, Albert. And if you allow me, I think Kapil Sunshira has given us, again, the perfect context for what we want to pay most attention to. You are right, especially if you look at history, that we are in a world in which, if you look at each industrial revolution as they are catalogued, an old set of jobs are wiped away, but the boom, the expansion that these new technologies introduce eventually creates a jobs. greater so set of a different new kind of jobs. With different skills. With different skills and so on as a result. So actually, the challenge is that some of the people will not be able to transition because we'll of, yeah. there'll be some fallouts and all of that. So that's what has typically been happening, managed. Yeah. What one must pay attention to, and I will quote a gentleman called John Good Irving, the first ultra-intelligent machine is the last invention that man need ever make. The difference here is we're not simply introducing machines to assist us do what we would do. And the best part of what Kofiel Sushira said that caught my attention was when he said human intelligence. You see, right there, what is before us and what we have to contend with, and by the way, we do have, in the context of policymakers, leaders, and so on, options to choose to curtail the introduction of such machine intelligence into mm -hmm. our society. Those are options. But if we follow the track where he said, technology carves its own path, then the kind of technology being introduced today and what's called that hypothetical point of singularity, which we are fast arriving, in fact, we are arriving at faster than previously projected, is where 
those limits that we saw to machines, where you would still need humans to come in and intervene, are transcended. And part of why that is occurring, we talked about big data and its explosion. We talked about how machine learning algorithms use that to constantly get smarter. But what we ultimately look at is the point at which that machine intelligence is able to, based on the comparison between electronic circuitry and the brain's neural network, our electronic circuits have about a thousand times the speed of processing as our interneuronal networks. Yes. So there's a stage at which, when you fed a certain amount of human knowledge and develop machine understanding, these machines actually, mathematically, transcend what we are able to do. From that point, it's only a choice whether we will not hand over a whole lot more intelligent jobs, not just the routine labor-intensive ones, but some of the very things he's described in areas like law, in areas like language translation, areas like teaching, to machines. Currently, we are sliding fully to that point because the people who would make the determinations as to whether we want to let this go or not. And I think we should pay attention to comments made by the likes of Bill Gates and Elon Musk, who are actually beginning to warn lawmakers, take a close look and start making certain determinations. Dr. Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum, who is essentially the author of the Fourth Industrial Revolution, has also warned similarly. We need to look out for negative externalities, we need to look out for exclusion, because we're not saying don't let these technologies come into play, but we are saying pay attention to the nature of change of this industrial revolution is not going to be like the others, where there will simply be machine intervention to replace on jobs and new jobs created. In this case, the machine is coming to stand in the place of the human. That is a big conversation that we will be having. I can tell you one thing, it is impossible to complete this discussion because there are aspects that I am even more curious about now, having opened what I may call a whole Pandora's box. But I tell you what, it is only fair that the future of work itself can be a whole series of conversations. I think so. Because I'm still here talking about the market woman who now says, okay, if this is what it means, then I must get ready to be able to participate in the way that I should. I'm thinking of the consumer who says, okay, this is what it represents for me, and I can benefit in these ways, and therefore I shouldn't be afraid. I'm thinking about the educator who says, all right, so then I must educate my people in a certain way for them to be abreast and therefore take advantage. So what's going to happen? And I know you are, you, you know, I know, I know we are, we are I'm, done. I'm giving you exactly a minute to wrap hmm. this up. And I'll end with a promise that we should do this again because there are major unanswered questions that I would like us to feature because if not, our listeners and will say, yes, so what if? And yes. then what about this? Call, Let me give you the closing thoughts in a minute. Go right. That's what we call technology diffusion. Okay. So all those use cases that you talk about in your concluding statements is such that we, we are going to have technology jump into um, various um, phases of life. And to my mind, that is what will really determine how much robots will be working with humans in the general fabric of life. So whether one day you will go to church and have a, a robot preach to you the word of God in an infallible way, or whether now, language. Uh, yeah, the policeman who is going to be on the street making sure there isn't crime, you know, it's going to be a robot, etc. I think that's where we are going with technology diffusion. I will tell you one thing. I did not give Kofi Usu permission to introduce another set of problematic. <laughs> <laughs> we have enough problems from the earlier conversations that we are yet to resolve. I think his last comments about the policeman the policeman directing traffic being a robot and the preacher being a robot brings a whole conundrum into this discussion. And one thing is certain, we are back on this same subject next week. We have to unravel even more complicated implications for our day-to-day -day life. Until then, let me remind you, it's the season for the Springboard Roadshow. And let me give you some great news. Whereas Springboard has been an on-the-road in-person experience for years with my guests here, 
having featured in various ways on Springboard. This year's Springboard is a quarterly virtual event that now allows people from all over the world to participate in real time in an interactive way like they've never done before. And today's conversation will help us amend even further what is happening starting this week. So I'm going to play you a little intro into what to look out for in your first springboard event. And guess what? Whatever happens, make sure you are part of it. Ensure that you, your friends, your loved ones, sign on and participate in this amazing experience as we look at repositioning, reviewing the past, redesigning the present, and reimagining the future. A big thank you to Kofi Daze for joining us for this conversation on Completed Building, and to Kofi Uzi Ishira for starting a new conversation <laughs> in your last contribution. Always. Guys, you're great. Thank you, thank you very much. So thank we you. come your way again next week. This has been Springboard, your virtual university, brought to you by the Springboard Racial Foundation in partnership with the Multimedia Group and proudly sponsored by MTN, UMB Bank, the Enterprise Group with support from the Graphic Business and My Joy Online. My name is Albert Okran, saying a big thank you on behalf of Team Springboard, led by Comfort. Until then, God bless you, God bless you, and God bless you. I'm out.
everything there. We go fight until the end. 